My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 18. Jeremy mentioned earlier it is our small group kickoff for the fall. My plug, we want you in life-giving relationships with people who love you and love God. We honestly don't care if you join a, a small group with Stonebridge. What we care about is that you've got those relationships somewhere in your life. If you don't, you're going to get picked off. Life is difficult. If you're trying to do it by yourself, you're not going to make it for long. And so we want you connected with, again, with people who love you and who love the Lord. And you have that, whatever that context is for you, if it's dinner, if it's a small group here, whatever that context is where you're intentionally spurring one one another on to love and good deeds. That's what we're looking for. And that's what we hope our small groups uh, provide. So, again, Jeremy will come back up in a little bit and set the table for all of that. But that's my encouragement to you. All right, 1 Samuel 18. So we've seen David introduced three different ways, three different aspects of who he is. We've seen him introduced as the chosen one, this one picked by God to be the king. We've seen him introduced as a worshiper, and we've seen him introduced as a warrior. And all three of those uh, elements of his uh, calling and elements of his person will see played out as we continue to look at first and Second Samuel. Today, what we're going to look at is David's relationship with Saul, with Saul's family, and with the people of Israel. This is a, a bit of a transitional chapter in First Samuel, and a lot of the dynamics that we'll see this morning, it's really a table setter, we'll see played out uh, in the coming weeks. So this, again, is, is more of an introduction, even though it's in the middle of First Samuel. There's some transitions here that we want to grab onto. Uh, chapter 18, verse 1, after David had finished talking with Saul, so David has killed Goliath. Saul wants to know who David's father is, what family he's from. David's told him. Jonathan, who's Saul's son, became one in spirit with David. He loved David as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, in his belt. So here you see Saul loves David. Second, uh, excuse me, First Samuel sixteen twenty one says Saul loves David. David's very beneficial. He's helpful to Saul. He plays worship when Saul has this evil spirit attack him. It brings peace to David's heart. And we last week we saw David as this mighty warrior who uh, stands up to Goliath, kills him, leads the Israelites into victory. So what Saul has done is he said, David, you're going to stay with me now. That's one of the prerogatives of a king. And Saul does it again because he loves David and because David uh, is helpful to him. We also see here kind of an overview of David's relationship with Jonathan, uh, who is Saul's oldest. And our, or excuse me, it's Saul's uh, oldest son. In our language, they, they're best friends. It says they're one in spirit. There's a, there's a devotion that they have to one another. When C.S. Lewis talks about friendship, he says friends stand side by side and they're, they're pursuing the same thing together. And you see that with David and with Jonathan. Both of them are men of faith. Both of them are strong warriors. Both of them are absolutely committed to God vindicating his name within Israel. The Philistines are attacking and they see themselves as people who are, who are guarding in some ways the reputation of God by leading the people in battle, when uh, Jonathan leads the, when Jonathan attacks the Philistine outpost in First Samuel 14, is a parallel to David standing up to Goliath. Again, these are kindred spirits, or in our language, they would be best friends. Jonathan loves David as he loves himself. That loves himself. That's how we're all instructed 
to love one another. If you want to see what a true uh, friendship, kingdom friendship looks like, you look at Jonathan and David. Jonathan makes a covenant with David. He's uh, in the power position as the heir apparent to the throne. But he recognizes something in David. He recognizes the hand of God on David. And so with all this stuff of giving him his clothes and his sword, what he's saying is, here are all the trappings of being the heir apparent, and I'm giving them to you. I recognize that it's not, it's not my throne. I'm not going to be the one to come after my dad. You are. So giving these things, the sword and the robe especially, those were tokens of power. And Jonathan giving them to David is a recognition that God has his hand on David's life and that David is going to be the one to succeed Saul. Uh, verse 5. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Again, a kind of a broad statement, an overview statement of how things are going to play out. You see David is well liked uh, by the army as well. Verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistines, so now we're back in real time. The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul is slain as thousands and David is ten thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with ten thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, excuse me, Saul kept a close eye on David. That's the most important verse for us. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. That word close eye could be uh, looked at him suspiciously or jealously. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. So Saul has loved David, and now something shifts. They're coming home after David has slain Goliath. The Israelites have routed the Philistines. Women are coming out of their house as is normal, and they're celebrating. Just They're singing a song. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Is that literal? How many people has David killed? One. He's a big guy. He's one guy. That's it. Saul and his insecurity can't hear it. And that it, it stirs something in him. And from that time on, he begins to see David suspiciously. He keeps his eye on him in the worst possible way. He's jealous of what he sees in David. Saul knows he's been rejected by God. He knows God has chosen someone better. And now he puts a face to his fear. Could it be David? Is he the one who's going to take my place? And Saul begins act very differently towards David from this point. That's the turning point in uh, Saul's relationship with David. We, we, we saw a couple of weeks ago, there's this evil spirit from God that torments Saul. And when that evil spirit comes upon Saul, David worships, plays the lyre, and Saul has peace and rest. And this evil spirit departs from him. It happens again. Normally, again, David plays and Saul finds peace. This time, David plays and Saul tries to kill him. Twice. I don't know what, think about that for David. If, if I threw a spear at you, would you stay in the room and let me throw it again? But he does. It shows the depth of loyalty and commitment he has to Saul, that he's willing to stay, maybe even give him the benefit of the doubt in that moment. What's changed? Same evil spirit. David is the same. He's leading in worship. The only thing that's changed is Saul's 
heart. We don't have too much time to dig into this, but so what Saul moves from agreeing with God to disagreeing with God. Saul is not possessed. This is an evil spirit that comes upon him. It's external to him. We make it like temptation. That's something external to you. Temptations don't spring up from your heart. They come at you from outside. That's why you can resist them. And so Saul, when he's agreeing with God and us, when we're agreeing with God, in some senses, our hearts are secure. And then these things that come at us from outside, they they don't penetrate. We're able to resist. We're able to flee. We're able to say no. What Saul does when he disagrees with God, and he disagrees with God about David. God has said David is a chosen one. He's the one who's going to replace you as king. And what Saul has decided is he's not a successor. He's a rival. He's not to be honored. He's not to be respected. He's to be disposed of. He's disagreeing with God. And in that moment, he opens the door of his heart to something wicked. And so David leads worship. And rather than this evil spirit fleeing, this evil spirit has access into Saul's heart. And he motivates him, stirs him, drives him to try to kill David. And Saul begins to unravel massively from this point forward, from verse 9 on. He's a train wreck of a person. He, he literally looks like he's going crazy, the different things that he does. And it's all because he, he chooses to look at David suspiciously. He chooses to disagree with what God says about David. And that opens the door of his heart to this massive influence of wickedness and evil. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So Saul sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. And everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. That word afraid means dread. Or to be intimidated by someone who is better than you or stronger than you. So Saul recognizes something in David. He recognizes the hand of God on David and he's intimidated by him. David hadn't done anything wrong at all. But Saul is intimidated by the the hand of God on David. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was intimidated by him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaign. So we've seen Jonathan loves David, the exact same word here. All of Israel and Judah love David. Saul sends David away. That's what you normally do with things that you're afraid of. You try to get as far away from them as possible. He sends David out. Maybe he hopes the Philistines kill him. Maybe he's just trying to reduce his influence by getting him out of the, uh, getting him away out into a, to a battlefield. We don't want anything to do with David. David continues to experience success, so Saul becomes even more intimidated by him. Verse 17, Saul said to David, here's my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against David. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, who am I and what is my family or clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Meholah. So remember, Saul said, whoever kills Goliath gets my daughter. Those were the terms. David killed Goliath. He should have gotten the daughter. He doesn't. Saul changes the terms of the agreement. David doesn't fuss. And he says to David, he's playing on his loyalty and his love for the Lord. Continue to fight the battles of God. You keep doing that, and he's hoping, battlefields are risky, that David will be killed. That's the hope. That way his blood and some, in Saul's mind, is not on his hands. I'll let the Philistines do the dirty work. And David says, I'm nobody. I don't deserve to be in the royal family. Uh, 
when dads would marry off their daughters, they would set a bride price. It was what you would pay as a groom to, for the privilege of marrying this woman. It was to compensate the, the, the family for the, the loss of a child. And that was set wherever the, the dad got to set where that was. And David is saying, I can't meet the price. My family, we don't run in the same circles as you, Saul. I, I'm not worthy to be in your family. And so Saul moves on and gives Merib, who should have been David, to someone else. Verse 20. Now Saul's other daughter, another one of his daughters, Michael, was in love with David. That same word again. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought. Why? So that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. That is a true father's heart for his daughter. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Saul ordered his attendants speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. Same word again. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. We're not going to talk about any of this. They counted out the full. Don't picture this. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, in marriage. That's a really romantic picture. It's what every girl dreams of for her proposal. When, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. Uh, that's hostile. It's a different word. He became hostile in his mind towards David and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out in battle and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became well known. So you see Saul, now he's using, he's tried to use the Philistines. It didn't, we tried to kill him with a spear. It didn't work. He tries to send him in battle. Hopefully the Philistines will kill him. That doesn't work. Now he's using his daughter. Maybe she'll spiritually corrupt David. That's what that word snare means. As we look more at Michael in the next few chapters, we'll see she's not exactly the most devoted follower of God in the world. And and Saul's thinking maybe she'll spiritually corrupt David. Or maybe because David desires her or wants to be in the family, I'm going to set this price of the death of a hundred Philistines. Maybe he'll die trying to win her. And all of those things backfire. David kills 200 instead of 100. Michael, we see, loves David. Same word again. Everything that Saul has tried to do has backfired. He's completely out of step with everybody regarding David. Jonathan loves David. Michael loves David. Saul's attendants love David. All of Israel and Judah love David. The only person who doesn't is Saul. He's out of step with God even more significantly. It says, we read in verse 12 and 14, the hand of God is, is on David. But in verse, I think it's 28, Saul acknowledges it. So Saul knows that God is with David. And his response is not to say, you know what? Like his son, Jonathan. 
God is with David, and so I need to bless and encourage. At a minimum, I need to get out of the way. Even if he can't be like Jonathan, who has way more to lose than Saul. Saul's still the king. Jonathan's the one who's not going to get to be the king because God chose David. He has way more to lose than Saul. And still you see the depth of his love for the Lord, that he's willing to not just step aside, but actively encourage David in pursuing this calling, even at personal expense. Saul can't even get out of the way. He decides in that moment to become an enemy of David for the rest of his days. If God has chosen David and Saul becomes an enemy of David, what does that make Saul relative to God? You see what has happened to him. He's a, he's a train wreck. Chosen David to be the king. Just like God sovereignly picked Saul out of all the men in Israel. And Samuel comes and anoints him with oil and they do that whole thing with the lots and Saul is picked out of every guy. God has sovereignly chosen David. Saul knows exactly what it is. He knows exactly what it looks like. Just like God chose him, God chose David. And rather than accepting, rather than submitting, rather than cooperating, again, at a minimum, rather than just getting out of the way, he chooses to actively oppose. And things go downhill for him really, really quickly. Saul is out of step with the people regarding David. More importantly, Saul's out of step with the Lord regarding David. And all of it is tied back to that one little phrase. He looked at David suspiciously. He looked at David jealously. That little bitty crack in his heart opens the door for all of this hostility that we see. He tries three different ways to kill David. We see this this downward spiral of emotion toward David. He's afraid of him. Then he's intimidated by him. Then he's hostile towards him. And again, as we uh, read through the rest of 1 Samuel leading up to Saul's death, he continues just to spiral out of control. All because he's suspicious. Why is he suspicious? Again, there's, Saul knows he's been rejected. He knows God's picked a better man, a man after God's own heart. And now he can put a face to his fear. I'm wondering if it's David. It's it's that guy. And as he continues to try to thwart David and David continues to be successful, he recognizes the hand of God upon David's life. And again, rather than acknowledging that and getting out of the way, he tries to actively oppose. And all of that's rooted in his own insecurity. We're not, it's not psychology. We're not going to try to shrink Paul's, or excuse me, Saul's head. But there's a recognition here. Saul is deeply, deeply insecure. And when he hears some women sing... Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. It sets that insecurity on fire in him. And he, he, never, he never can get that raging insecurity under control. That insecurity, I believe, is rooted in his lack of relationship with the Lord. From the first time we meet Saul, he's introduced to us as someone who doesn't know God someone who doesn't have a relationship with God. We never see him develop any kind of connection to the Lord at all. When Saul talks about God, he uses second-person pronouns. Your God, y'all's God, never my God or our God. When he's rejected, his response to Samuel is to try to cling to the throne. Samuel, you've got to stay with me. I, want every, I don't want anybody to know that God's rejected me. You just, he, doesn't, he doesn't repent. He's not contrite. He just wants to hold on to his position. There's no relationship there. David, you'll see, when David's introduced to us, he's introduced as the chosen one. 
This one anointed by God to be the king. Exact same thing happened for Saul. They have that in common. David's introduced to us secondly as a worshiper. Saul has, there's no parallel in Saul's life. David's introduced as a worshiper, someone who has deep connection and relationship with the Lord. Again, read the Psalms and you can see the depth of his relationship. We don't see anything like that in Saul's life. David's introduced to us as a warrior, a mighty warrior, someone who fights Goliath, someone who leads successfully uh, militarily. Saul, is, is inter- Saul, we see the same thing. Both of them are empowered by the Holy Spirit to lead the people in battle. Two of the three things they have in common, what they don't have in common is the most significant. David has relationship. Saul has nothing. Saul has a position. And when that position is threatened by David, Saul falls apart because his identity is based on his role. His identity is based on the fact that he's a king. And once he's not a king, he's not anything. It'll be forever when we get there. But in 2 Samuel 15, one of David's sons, his name is Absalom, leads a coup. He brings about 50 guys, I think it is, into Jerusalem. And they're marching in. And he's saying to his dad, David, I'm the king now. And David chooses to leave. He doesn't fight. He chooses to leave. And as he's walking out of Jerusalem, he says this. God may see fit to put me back here. Or God may be through with me. It's up to him. David's identity is not based on his role as a king. His identity is based on his relationship as a son. And it's something Saul never gets. Kingship is off the table for Saul. Inheritance is off the table for his sons. But there's still an opportunity for Saul to relate to God as father and son. And he whiffs repeatedly this drastic measure of God sending an evil spirit to try to stir something, provoke something in Saul. Saul, you're miserable. The only time you find peace is in the presence of God when David worships. Can you put two and two together? Can you realize you need to be with the Lord? And he can't do it. He literally tries to kill the one who brings him peace. No relationship. Because he has no relationship, he's insecure. When David comes along and he doesn't do anything wrong, all he does is serve. That's it. He plays the liar when Saul is tormented, brings peace to him. He goes and fights wherever Saul sends him and wins. Meets the bride price for his daughter that he should have been given because he'd already defeated Goliath. He never gripes. He never complains. He never tries to grab hold of the kingship. He never does anything to undermine Saul at all. We'll see this dynamic playing out time and time again. He's confident in who he is. Where he falls in Saul's pecking order does not affect his identity. How successful he is as a military leader, it doesn't affect his identity. He continues to be faithful to what God puts in front of him time and time again because he knows who he is. Deep-rooted relationship in God. Saul has none of that. He rides the roller coaster. When things are going great, he builds a monument to himself. Look how awesome I am. I won this battle. When the kingship is taken from him, he tries to grab onto it, literally grab Samuel's robe, a grown man grabbing somebody else's robe. Don't leave. Don't leave. When he sees someone who he thinks could be God's chosen one, tries everything in his power to kill him, to destroy him whatever way he can. Because he's got nothing if he doesn't have his position. Any places where you're insecure this morning. For most of us, our immediate response is, no, I'm good. 
Do you feel threatened in any area of your life? Is there a place where maybe you don't feel peace or rest? There's a striving in you. Stereotypically, this is just stereotypically, guys tend to find their identity in what they do, their job. Women tend to find their identity in their role in a family, who they're taken care of and related to. A lot of times younger folks, students, high school, college, maybe a little bit out of college, find their identity based on the acceptance of a peer group. Most of those things are gifts. God gives us work. He gives us family. gives us friends. Those are good things that God has given us. But all of them are temporary. They're transitory. The only thing eternal is Him. If you begin to look at these good gifts as a source of your identity, then that's when you start feeling that restlessness. That's when you start experiencing that lack of peace and that anxiety. You're trying to base your identity on something that was never meant to support it. You begin to base your identity on something that changes. Your job will change. If nothing else, you're going to retire someday. Your family get married. And when they get married, you're not going to be their primary family anymore. That's difficult for some of us. Your friend group, it changes. It changes, for many of us, it changes repeatedly. As we go from high school to college to graduation, we move, different life stages. All of those things are gifts that God has given us. None of them are strong enough to support your identity. When Jesus begins his ministry, the Father says from heaven, when Jesus is in the Jordan River, this is my Son, not this is the Christ, not this is the Messiah, not this is the King of kings and Lord of lords, not this is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, not this is the healer. He doesn't say any of it. All of those things are true. And that's not what the Father focuses on. This is my Son. He defines Jesus' identity relationally. In connection to me, this is my Son. He does the same thing for us. Fundamentally, before you're anything else, you're a son or you're a daughter of God, and that's the only thing that's eternal. God says nothing can separate us from his love. Jesus says none that are given to him will be snatched from his hands. That's the only thing, if if nothing else, that's the only relationship that can make it through death. It alone is eternal. It's the only thing solid enough for you to base your identity on. Everything else can be taken away. Everything else at some point will change. And if your identity is based on what you do or who Uh, approves of you, who you take care of, you're going to fall apart. Are you going to throw spears? Probably not. You probably won't do that. But you may, you may, you may take shots verbally at somebody. You may do things to try to, you see a rival in your company and you may try to do something to head them off. You may. You may try to sabotage a relationship that one of your children has with somebody because that somebody is taking a place that you've always thought was yours. You may bend over backwards to be included in a group, compromise some things that are important to you. Those are the ways that that insecurity plays out in us. We don't send people off to war and hope they get killed. We're much more subtle than that. But it's the same heart in us. We become suspicious of people, jealous of other people who are threatening whatever that is in our hearts. 
It can be difficult to have your identity based on your relationship with the Lord because in a lot of ways it can seem almost ephemeral. It's hard to grab onto. You don't feel it all the time. You feel it when your boss says, you crushed it. You feel it when you get a raise. You feel it when the client or the customer tells you how great a job you did. You feel that. You feel it when someone in your house says, Mom, you hung the moon. I couldn't have done it without you. Though That feeds us, and we feel that. We feel it when we get called to do something on Friday night or everybody likes our posts or whatever those things are. We feel all of that stuff. And so over time, it's unconscious for most of us, but it, it's still there. It's subtle, but it's strong. We begin to place identity in things that are gifts and they're good, but they're never eternal and they're not foundational. So, again, do you feel threatened in any area of your life this morning? Is there a place where maybe you feel a bit insecure? Again, is there, are you striving? you working to hold on to something. you nervous about somebody taking your place, what you may be losing. So here's hard truth. If you base your identity on something else, at some point God most likely will take that away. I mean, he's going to kill anybody, but most likely he will take that away out of love for you and for whatever that other thing is. That other thing, whatever it is, is not made to... Hold the weight of your identity. And it's too shaky for you. So the best thing is to get on the front end of that. And that's what we want to try to do this morning as we close. You can close your eyes and pray with me. Again, this is a dynamic. It's a big concept. In some ways, it's extremely simplistic. It can be easy to dismiss. I'm confident in who I am in the Lord. Kind of let's move on. Christianity 101. If you'll take a minute. And you'll dig, you may realize there's some places where you are vulnerable at a minimum. We'll see these dynamics playing out again over the next several weeks. We'll circle back to it. So for this morning, just really simply, before Jeremy comes back up, just ask the Lord this question in your heart. God, is there an area where I'm insecure? Is there an area where I'm defining myself, deriving my sense of identity, from anything other than the fact that I'm a son or a daughter of yours. If you need categories, you can think about work. Think about your home your friend group. Kind of the community at large. We can be tempted to define ourselves by our successes, our accomplishments, our resume. Those are the four main ones. And there's subcategories of all of that. You can just work through those four. The Lord may give you a check and say you're good. Thank him for that. Bless the Lord. But there may be a snag. You may, you may have brought something to mind. And if he did, just as a first step, I'd encourage you to confess that to the Lord. I confess. God, I don't even see it. Maybe you didn't even see it. God, if you brought it to mind, I confess that I'm placing my identity in my fill-in-the-blank 
rather than the fact that you call me son or daughter. God, I pray for grace to rightly order that gift, that relationship, that position. God, I pray you'd show me how to live in that role relationship, whatever it is, as your son or as your daughter. One other thing kind of popped into my mind. God, if there's anyone that any of us need to go to, somebody who we've undermined, someone who we've seen as a threat or a rival and they're not, someone who we've, we've cut their knees out, would you bring that to our mind? Would you show us what it looks like to reconcile with them or to make that thing right? It may, it may not be a conversation. It may just be something behind the scenes. In Jesus' name, amen.